Hello and welcome to episode 191 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and I'm a producer. And I'm joined today by the fantastic <laughs> producer, Lucinda Rhodes-Takra. Hello, Lucinda. Hi, Giles. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Now, we worked together on a movie called Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot, which is out now on Sky Store and Cinema and should be out in the US in December. Is that correct? Do you know any more details than that? I really wish you wouldn't put me on the spot with dates. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I'll put you because on the spot. <laughs> I cannot get, I have no answer. But I tell you what, I'll come back to you on that and the next episode we do together, you can put it in the show notes. Great. Until then, everyone. You can't watch it unless you're in the UK. I have no, I don't know where it else is. But we had a lot of fun on that. We had a lot of fun making that movie. And there's a whole episode, which is 172 and 173. It was uh, part one and two, where we talk about the making of Arthur and Mellon. We had a load of cast and crew on to talk about that, which is brilliant fun. And we were joined by Andrew Roger, our cinematographer, who was also co-hosting with us both that day. So that was lovely to reunite and talk further about the ups and downs of filmmaking in Wales. Speaking of the ups and downs in filmmaking, we are both about to start production on new feature films separately. Um, you are making that upsets me. It really upsets. It does. Me. It, it upsets me too. We should just be doing. I really like working with you. Together. You're very good at what you do, actually. And you too. You're very good at what you do as well. <laughs> Round of applause for each other. We're both amazing. Modest as well. Very. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't discussed. Uh, today's episode is with the fantastic Dominic Monaghan, who is just brilliant. And we had a brilliant chat with him. Obviously, he talks about Lord of the Rings. He talks about his time making um, Lost, where Lucinda sang him a lovely song, which you'll get to hear. Uh, and he also talks about his brand new feature film, Pet, which is out now. Right. What did you what did you gain from the episode? What did you remember from chatting with the wonderful Dominic Monaghan? So one of my favourite parts of the interview with Dominic was when he discussed how he gets rid of some of the, the darker characters that have encapsulated his his body when when making certain films. Uh, I found that very interesting. It's not something that I'd heard from an actor before because you mm. kind of assume that they just get rid switch of the character off. and switch off. Yeah, so that was mm. great. Um, I yeah, know some of our viewers will find that interesting. Totally. I think that's going to be really interesting to hear for you lot, which is coming up. And also, he talks about producing and acting at the same time, which he's been doing more and more of. Uh, it's a twisted love story, his pet. It's so good. It's really, really enjoyable. Absolutely is. So, Lucinda, myself and you, at the moment, are both about to start making feature films. I'm feature films, a feature film, but separately. Mm. I'm three weeks away from shooting. You're two weeks away from shooting. Um, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you're doing and the preparation during COVID, this new lockdown we've had, about what you're, how and how the hell we are still doing it? I don't know if it was a shock to everybody, actually. It, it wasn't a massive shock to say, uh, for the government to say we were going back into, into lockdown. Um, it was, I think everybody over the weekend kind of went into this panic mode. Are we doing it? Are we not doing the shoots? And obviously for us as producers to take a step back, knowing we're going ahead in two weeks and just to have a look at everything, the guidelines. And, and it actually, it isn't as bad as, as the shock that everyone went into on Saturday and mm -hmm. Sunday. Yeah. I think it was just hard for everybody to hear it again and everyone was like, no, 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 we really need to get back to work, we need to be creative as well, because people are kind of losing their minds a little bit, they're not creating, they may be writing, but then they're not hearing the words off the page. Um, so a lot of people just really panicked that the film wouldn't go ahead, but it is going ahead. Biggest Amazing. kind of hurdle for us, because it's first day back in the office after hearing about lockdown, it, it's Monday, you know, the phone went off the hook, the emails went, went wild. It was like, okay, uh, Jeet and myself, um, who's my producing partner and also uh, my husband, we tend to stay very calm during this process. I know you do as well, Giles, because 
it's there's no point in panicking when somebody panics mistakes are made mm -hmm. so you have to sit back and assess what's happened okay we've lost accommodation we've lost the locations uh, we've still got crew but we can't house them and nobody lives in the area where we are filming and I've got a uh, cast flying in from LA from Spain different areas in the UK it's it's been a challenge uh, but at the end of the day um, it's it, it seems to be working out we have very strict guidelines um, for how we're going to deal with um, a COVID set so yeah it's it's okay I'm, I'm, I'm confident how are you feeling about it three weeks away yeah I'm confident too I think we still got a couple of crew members and that cast yet to get so it's a little scary but it's also it's part of the fun right you know you can get cast members the day before if you really have to but I'd rather not I'd rather prepare a lot and work with them and no, we've done that before haven't we we have done that before <laughs> on Arthur and Merlin and it's not as much fun that's for sure being on set not knowing who certain characters are gonna be and I think uh, for this I really want to cast my leads as soon as possible but apart from that it's going really well um, so some of the crew from Arthur and Merlin you've got it's which is, great, which is amazing it's um, really nice yeah I like to yeah, work with familiar people and it's lovely um, yeah. it, is, it is sad that, that you, you won't be joining us. Um, it is sad, but I'm making my own movie, so... You are. It's, yeah, it's fun and games. So basically we'll fill you in on everything that's going on up to the lead up of that. And when I'm on set, I imagine Robbie will take over. I'll do some live stuff from set for you. See how we're getting on, see how I feel. If I'm, if I'm not too tired, um, I'll do as much as I can for you. But yeah, super excited because today's episode is with Dominic Monaghan. And we're about to get to that. Uh, Lucinda is a big fan and so am I and who isn't he's a brilliant actor and a really cool guy as well a um, couple of shout outs for you Jack Tarling got in touch now Jack Tarling is the producer of God's Own Country and he has a new platform set up for filmmakers it's called Mother Tongue and he is looking for filmmakers who from the UK who are writing in a different language and they have money to give filmmakers so if you have anything and you've got a script in Welsh in Farsi in whatever other language you've got but set in the UK he is looking for your project right now the link to that is in the show notes it's called Mother Tongues get in touch if that is you screenwriters filmmakers start looking at it this is available now for you to go make your film next year get involved and this episode is sponsored by performance insurance performance insurance are so wonderful they're really lovely guys if you need short-term or long-term insurance for your films right now and they are on top of the whole COVID situation then do get in touch I've been with them for years and they are so lovely and incredible so whatever your needs are at the moment go to performanceinsurance.com links to that are in the show notes and get your insurance with performance uh, say I sent you say the filmmakers podcast sent you cool shall we get to it Lucinda shall we get to this week's episode with Dominic Monaghan let's do it let's go all right here it is enjoy everyone Hey, remember me? I was just wondering if you wanted to get maybe dinner. I don't know about you, but I love seafood. There's a place on Wilshire. Yeah, we could tonight. Holly, right? Holly Garling. Yes, Eric. Hey, babe. I'm serious, though, Hall. Move on already. Someone's popular. Who's the guy? I already sort of have a boyfriend, that's so. all. No, you don't. You're keeping a girl in a cage. I'm not doing this for me. 
doing this for you. How's it going? And you're in. Are we here? I know. We're Where about, whereabouts are you guys? I'm in um, North London. I'm in middle of Suffolk in the UK. Have you been there? Do you know it? Yeah, I've been to Suffolk. I think I chased a girl around, kind of. In a creepy way or in a in a kind of nice way? Uh, it, was it was consensual. It was all good. For the, for the most part. I mean, I'm from Manchester. My parents generally live in Spain, but they're trapped in Manchester right now. But how's, yeah. you know, obviously I check in with my parents and my family, but how's, how's everything feeling coronary wise and as you're moving into kind of an autumnal vibe in England? I'm still quite nervous, I have to be honest. Uh, being in Suffolk, uh, myself and my husband, we're able to kind of self-isolate in general anyway. We've kept ourselves away and now everybody it's kind of is going out and socialising a lot more. And I see my girlfriends are socialising there in London. I'm like, how are you standing so close to people? So I'm still quite nervous moving forward. I mean, Giles has been in London. So you've seen a completely different flip side. I think it's really interesting. It's people are sort of very scared but also they're getting on with stuff so there's a lot of uh, certainly from the filmmaking side there seems to be a lot of stuff happening suddenly it's mm. taken a turn where people are going oh, okay we're going we're ready to go in production the money's there let's go let's just all do it covid safe i mean yeah, yeah. producing something right now that's mm. actually filming right this moment and right. we've both got other productions going in in november and it's suddenly like what but in terms of what the feeling's like i think everyone's just in denial and a bit pissed off and it's going to get worse people are going to get really pissed off come october, october november yeah and we're in october <clears throat> november december even you know turn of the year people are gonna be like oh fuck's sake oh, i'm and, over it and a lot of these christmas restrictions which i think there will be you know they'll be mm -hmm. like look have your christmas in a safe responsible way but it's not going to be parties on oxford street and fireworks celebrations no. and christmas decorations and we don't want 15 people in the same house type thing you know? totally so. i know they, well, but they won't have that new year's eve in london will they because normally no, every no. yeah no chance no chance no chance what about you because you're in la right i'm in la my parents are in manchester i don't think i'm coming back to europe for christmas because obviously a two-week quarantine in my parents house and then a two-week quarantine in my house so basically a month in two different houses seems to make no sense. I have a, a tiny group of friends here, some of which uh, are probably going to stay here, some of which might move around. I'll probably do Christmas with, you know, two or three other people and it'll just be at the same with everyone else, just something that you have to get used to, something you get on with. But, I mean, we've got a, a truly insane political situation going on right now. A truly insane. And a debate happening tonight. And very angry people, and it's the most politically kind of divisive country, and also probably one of the most poorly educated English-speaking countries I've ever spent time in. So you get angry, stupid people yep. coming together to fight each other. No bueno! Anyway, we should, get, we should get talking about this because I could talk about it forever. It, it's amazing. And I've, well, I've got friends in LA right now who are leaving, British actors, filmmakers who are leaving. They're literally going, I'm not staying in LA anymore. And they're coming back to the UK. And I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah. Nothing's filming there these days. It's too hot. There's shit going down. Like, nah, mm. do you know what? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky time for sure. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, yeah, we're here to talk to you, obviously, about your filmmaking your career so far and what you've been up to and obviously talk about pet the film that is released just now um which is super exciting because you know it's just even though it was shot a little while ago and i know exactly how you feel because a film that i made in 2016 2017 has just come out now the dare and it is one of those where you go oh we're talking about something we made a while ago but at the same time films take a while to come out do you want to talk yeah. a little about that process and how that feels first of all yeah, I mean, and it's, it even goes even further back for me with Pet. I was going to do Pet in between seasons two and three of Lost. Oh, seasons one and two of Lost. Wow. Which is in, what, the early 2000s. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a long there time. It was a long time ago, but there was a writer's strike, which put the kibosh on it. Yep. And then when we came back, certain actresses that we were keen on uh, – 
having played the role of Holly, came and went. One actor, one actress got pregnant. One actress fell out because she felt like the script was a little hardcore, which you know it is. It is a little hectic, um, and it just kind of got put on the back burner. I was I was making a computer game for Microsoft called Quantum Break, and my agent called me on a break, but not a quantum break. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's a terrible joke. And, yeah, um, good I like that. and, uh, thanks. And, and said, Hey, that pet project is back 10, almost 10 years later. And I, and I said to him, well, you know, this was supposed to be a guy who's left school, probably mm. not gone to college, got a crappy job and now sees his high school sweetheart. I said, this is now going to be someone who's left school for a significant amount of time. Let me pitch to the producers that the character becomes even darker, even more sad, even more isolated by the fact that he's clearly never had a girlfriend. He's got no friends. He's, he's, his life is on hold. He's like a, a man child, you know? So mm. uh, I pitched it. They loved it. And then we shot it. It, like in 19 days in LA, which is pretty fast for a shoot. Yeah. Um, with the wonderful Ksenia Solo, who who yeah. was kind of the final kind of piece of the jigsaw. I mean, she's fabulous, uh, isn't she? You played she's Holly, great. She's, she's so great. good. Yeah, really good. You'll know her from Black Swan, uh, Lost Girl, yeah. stuff like. That. She's just brilliant. It's really cool. I always say to people, you know, obviously I've been lucky that I've been involved in some projects that that people are aware of. So usually when I'm walking down the street, it is. Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Lost or so, something like that, X-Men or something like that. But when people say to me, what's a, what's a film or TV show that you've done that you really like that I might not know about? I always mention Pet because it seems from the outside to be very much kind of weird boy meets girl, kind of stalker, kind of, you know, moving into a little bit of a thriller, chiller vibe. Mm. But without revealing any spoilers... It is not that film. What you come to realize is he is not who he thinks he is and she is not who you think she is. And, you know, tables turn and, and, and there's a lot of things that change. So I think people might move into Pet thinking, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be about a weird guy who puts a girl in a cage. And that's kind of the movie. No, it's not that. No, it's really not. And, and it's the <laughs> fact you've, you keep her in your animal shelter where you work as well. It's just really interesting. I think mm. the whole concept is just fascinating. What was yeah. it? Obviously, you haven't done that many horror films either in terms of, you know, especially with this. It's gory. It, there's a lot going on. What's the difference then working in like a horror compared to doing something like Lord of the Rings where it is, again, you've got quite a lot of blood and you've got lots of action going on, but at the same time, you, you know, this this is you unhinged and then having to go, oh, maybe I'm not the unhinged one, um, which is brilliant to play. Yeah, I have to admit, horror is probably my least favourite genre in film. And I'll, I'll, you know, preface that by saying, I'm obsessed by movies. I'm usually watching a movie or two a day. And that's not to say that there aren't notable exceptions in that genre that I absolutely love. Let the Right One In is in my top five movies of all time. Just a, guess, yeah. a, a flawless movie as far as I'm concerned. The Exorcist is incredible. The original Halloween is incredible. Nightmare on Elm Street is incredible. Um, Section Nine is incredible. You know, yeah. I, there's, there's a lot of scary films that I love, but I am aware that the world, my experience of the world can be a genuinely authentically scary place. And I don't necessarily put myself in a place of wanting to be entertained by being scared. I can walk outside of my house and be scared. I can watch the <laughs> fucking news right now and be scared, be scared yeah. you know? So, Horror is not necessarily a genre where I'm like, I've got to do horror, I've got to do horror. Like, if it's a good script, it's a good script. The thing for Pet with me is it, it, it felt much more like a thriller. That's not to say that there aren't scary elements to it. My job doesn't really change, honestly, Giles. Like, I have to try and present a character that people might think they could meet on a bus they could be sat next to in a bar. Someone who is completely three-dimensional. That's my only job in everything that I've done. So even way back to Lord of the Rings or, or 
the characters that I've played in, you know, fantastical projects like Star Wars, my job is always, how do I make this person feel real? That you could know this person, that you could meet this person. If I achieve that with Seth, the script, the, the narrative of the script should do all the hard work for me. That's great. It's a really good answer. Because working in, working in horror is... Like I said, it's, sometimes it's elevated as well because in real life you you put, probably wouldn't react that way. You know, you'd after a while you can't scream for that long or you can't be that fearful for that long. You can't keep doing the same things, banging your head against a cage, whatever it is, because you actually can't. You know, in horrors, so many people get hurt more than you would in real life when you do things that you wouldn't do in real life, like go down that corridor. Though saying that, we've seen so many people not wearing masks or so many people gathering in places where they shouldn't. So actually, maybe we would do those things in that certain yeah. situation. So it's how do you cope with that then? Because you do have to, like I say, elevate those, those moments. And you can't just... Uh, step away from that when you have to be intense for so long as an actor how do you cope with that intensity yeah i i try as hard as i can to in in any project that i do in situations where the the mood is elevated or the 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 um situation that you find yourself in is an elevated kind of moment in it would be an elevated moment in someone's life i try as hard as I can to spend as much time with it as possible. So those intense moments in pet, I spend as much time with the script reading over it so that I become familiar with it. Cause what, what will tend, what we tend to find if you look at people having those moments in real life is most of the time while they're going through that, they're just a in the moment and be kind of in shock. Mm -hmm. So you don't tend to have these, you know, big fatal attraction, Alfred Hitchcock reactions to things. Lots of times you'll find slightly incongruous things happen. Like if someone gets into a car accident, instead of, you know, being in pain and, and screaming out for their loved ones or their parents, sometimes they'll start laughing or sometimes they'll, they'll try and yeah. walk it off. You know, they'll have a broken ankle and they'll be embarrassed that someone saw them get hit by a car. So they'll stand up and try, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And you're like, no, no, you've broken your ankle, you know? So sometimes the reaction is not what you'd expect. So in those shocking moments in scripts, I just try and think, okay, your initial thought is to play, to play the moment. Oh my God, that's a scary thing. But lots of times when a scary thing happens, you might not yeah. react in that way. You might grab a banister or you might trip and, and slip or something like that. So I, I get familiar with the freaky moments, you know, and I always underplay it. All, all the actors that I love, that you, that you try and, that I try and watch and get influenced by and, and try my hardest to be, be kind of um, inspired by are the ones that, Honestly, it's like it's like a secret in the business. They they kind of do nothing, you know. If you watch Anthony Hopkins, he doesn't really do a huge amount. He lets the scene occur on his face and lets the audience uh, understand what his face is doing. But really, he's a blank canvas. It's this. It's the same with Gary Oldman. It's the same with Daniel Day Lewis in certain performances, but not all of them. It's the same with Brando. He's just a canvas, and then the audience push their emotion onto his face and then it reflects back towards them. When you finished an intense role, how do you, uh, how do you come down from that? Because you're, you're encompassed by this character and then all of a sudden you've wrapped and you've stopped. So what, how, do you go on holiday? Do you take some time out? Because you can't go from one project, or maybe you can, one project to another and switch that character from one role to another. So how do you, how do you just zen from that? pre-corona times i will often go away somewhere if i can i'm an avid scuba diver so scuba diving is kind of a, a wow. big thing for me once you get under the water you know you, you're completely in a different element so oh wow that yeah. just take it just takes you away from what you've been doing well, it's a know. different world down there isn't it it totally is and they don't they don't respond to any of the social cues that we have up here they don't care they're not interested which is which is great my dad is a massive gardener I became kind of a big-ish gardener in my late 20s. And since then, I've been gardening quite a lot. So, and I have a kind of menagerie of, of animals in my, in my house that have no interest whatsoever in what I've just done or who, who I've played or all of those things that lots of people seem to 
find important. There is a there is a euphoria that occurs even on every single rap day, every single day that you that you rap. I have friends in the business, camera operators, focus pullers, stuff like that, and I can tell when one of my technician friends has rapped in their voice because you can just hear a kind of euphoria. It's like, you know, when you're at school and, and yeah, the bell yeah. goes for the end of the yeah, day, yeah. you're like, ah, oh, you got all this energy, you know. <laughs> and you, didn't, you didn't have it 20 minutes ago, but you've just, you've just got it, you know. I get, I get that too. If I'm, playing a, if I'm playing kind of a role that demands you to kind of slough it off, someone like Seth mm-hmm. in Pet, who mm-hmm. is dark and, and has a lot of issues, then, you know, meditation's kind of a, a, a helpful mm-hmm. thing. I was in Peru about, how long would this have been now? Five or six years ago, something like that, uh, imbibing plant medicine for like two weeks. And on one of those evenings, I started puking up characters and I didn't know what was going on. And I had to get told by the person who was working with these plants with me that like, oh, you just puked up a thief and you just puked up a, a liar and you just puked up a, a joker and you wow. puked up a stalker. And I was like, what, what, who, what are these characters? And they were like, these are characters that you are holding on to. And I was able to work out, oh, the thief is that guy that I played in that movie. And the stalker is this thing. And this shaman guy was saying to me, because of the job that you do and because of who, who you are, those, those characters stay in your body. You need to get them out. So I was able to puke them out, which yeah. is an interesting. Uh, That's really, really to... interesting. That is. Were you uh, actually puking them out, or was it actually physically? I was puking up. I was puking up stuff. I hadn't eaten all day. It was palpable. I, I could feel a a change in my kind of system and a and a lightness in my system. And I called over the shaman guy to find out what was going on. And he was watching and these guys are just existing on a completely different level, which, mm. you know, was difficult for me to understand. I come from a background of science. My dad was a biology teacher. My brother's a biology teacher. There's a lot of science in my immediate family. <coughs> and I never really thought magic was real until you start uh, kind of working out what these shaman do. And the shaman was saying to me every so often as I was puking, because I probably puked like eight, 10 times in, in three or four minutes, he was saying to me in Spanish, oh, that's a, that you just puked up a thief. You just purged. They call it La Purge, which is like mm. the purge. They're like, oh, you just purged up a thief. You just purged up a joker. You just purged up a stalker. And I was like, a stalker? And I was like, oh, that's Seth. Seth was a stalker, you know? Mm-hmm. And I started to connect that these are characters that sit in my body and I need to get them out. Otherwise, they take over from me. And there's a bit, I need some space to be me, you know. Totally. It's a great question, Lucinda. So have those characters ever come back since the puking? As in, do you know, do you know what I mean? Do you yeah. still did you eat, did you eat some of that bran flakes? And then oh, no, suddenly, <laughs> oh, Seth's come no. back because that was on the bran flakes. No, <laughs> Sorry, no. <Karen. laughs> I'm being serious. I know, go It's on. not a joke. What, <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, have they stayed with you or since the puking, have, do you feel that they have left you and you won't revisit those characters again? I definitely feel like in the puking, in the purging, that there was a release valve that occurred and, and a certain percentage of those characters, a, a big percentage of those characters have left me. But I, I do, I am still slightly flummoxed at times by my reaction to certain things or the way that I respond to certain things where I think, oh, that's strange. That's not me. I wouldn't have thought I would react that way. And then I have to sit with myself and think, this might be due to the fact that there's a a slight confusion in the character that you just played who had these beliefs or these thoughts or was frustrated by these things as opposed to you. So it can get tricky. There's a there's a weird thing about when, when you're involved in a field that is artistic. And I, I kind of knew this when I was like 13 or 14, even before I started working, that if I didn't get it out on a daily basis, whether that's, you know, acting in front of a mirror or improvising in my shower or painting or writing or something like that, I was, I was aware that it morphed in my body into something different, that it became darker, thicker, harder for me to get out. 
So a, a daily need to be artistic or to try and release that pressure valve is something that I've subscribed to over the years, which puts me in a place of meditation, of gardening, of working with man, yeah. of writing, mm. you know, so yeah. there's something to be said for that. Totally. It's been, it's been creative, isn't it? And I suppose there uh, you touched on how when you were younger, and I suppose that for us is something we like to talk about a lot on the podcast is how did you get into this business? What was it that made you think, oh, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to be creative. And in there, it sounds like you're already creative, you're already doing these things. But how did you progress from that to doing this as an actual career? I was a very kind of precocious little kid, very, very confident. I think that probably came from the fact that my mom and dad uh, kind of subscribed to the idea of just let them blow off steam if they want to chat, if they want to babble when they're little kids, if toddlers just talking in the high chair, just go, just talk, express yourself. So I've always been That's in great. a, yeah, it is good. I've always been mm. in, a, in a family dynamic of uh, allowing people to do and say whatever they want. I was and still am obsessed with movies as a kid. My dad got us a video player when I was probably seven or eight something like that and on a friday night he would bring home a video for the kids for my brother and i so that my parents could have a lie in on saturday morning so i would come downstairs in the early morning watch the film then my brother would come downstairs we'd watch the film together then my brother would go out and i'd watch the film for the third time Amazing. before my yeah. parents had even come downstairs and then i'd be like badgering my mum my and dad to watch it again and my mum and dad would be like no go outside yeah, go do play. something else come on yeah mm. but so, so totally obsessed with film as a kid what was your first cinematic love from that can you remember it was a movie that really stood out because for me it was I mean, bmx Rob, bandits oh could, bmx bandits nicole kidman right? yeah totally great right um yeah i mean pro probably star wars was the big one for me because yeah. once i once i figured out that Han Solo was also Indiana Jones. Once I made that leap. Mind blown, yeah. And yeah, I totally. like, asked my dad, because I just thought it was a documentary made in space where they were just showing me. <laughs> and then there's a documentary in these tombs showing the archaeologists, you know. And I said to my dad, how can he be Han Solo and Indiana Jones? And my dad said, oh, he's an actor. He puts on a hat and he's Indiana Jones. And then, you know, he puts on a blaster. That's how acting and works. Yeah. There's just a moment there where I thought, Oh, well, I, I'll, I'll do that then. That's, that's me anyway, so I may as well do that, you know. So then moving into uh, high school, I was badgering my drama teacher to constantly be doing plays. I wanted to do two a year, but she was like, no, we can only do one a year. So I was very enthusiastic about that. Because we could only do one, I joined Manchester Youth Theatre nice. and did a couple of plays there. I have a friend called Johnny Leather, whose dad was an exec producer at Granada, this it's is a great pre name. Great yeah. name. Johnny, it's a Johnny great Leather. name. Great name, right? Great name. So his dad, his dad, Bill Leather, shout out to Bill Leather, because he, he was a big influence on, on where I got to in my career, yeah. um, was an exec producer at Granada. So this is, is pre-engineer, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was doing this play at Manchester Youth Theatre, and I said to Johnny, does your dad know any agents in Manchester? Because he's an exec producer at Granada. Does he know anyone? And I got a printout, must have been from a typewriter or something like that, of like 15 addresses of local regional agents in Manchester, in Stockport, in Levenshoom, in Bolton, in all of these places. And I wrote a letter to all of them. Hi, my name is Dominic Monaghan. I'm in this play. Please come see me. Please let me know if you can attend. And I got two replies. Uh, both of them said they'd come. The rest of them didn't, didn't even reply. One of them came and I never met them. They must have seen it and thought, no, he's terrible. And the, <laughs> and the other Forget one... Forget it. Yeah. He's never going to make... He's, he's never, never going to be a star. It. Forget and it. It's, it's like when, you know, well, like that uh, joke of like going on a blind date and they didn't show up and then the friend says, oh, do you think they showed up, looked at your face and then left? Uh, <laughs> so I thought like that with the agent. But no, the other agent came and they were like, hey, you know, we'd like to represent you. Um, Brilliant. They did. Wow. I went to college, Aquinas College in Stockport. I had two auditions, one for Emmerdale Farm. It was not Emmerdale at the time. It was Emmerdale yeah. Farm. It was Emmerdale Farm, I remember. Yeah. Emmerdale Farm back in the day, which I didn't get. I went to Leeds for an audition with my mom. I didn't get the audition. I was pretty, pretty crestfallen about it. I was an extra yeah, but aren't, aren't you glad now? 
Yeah, well, no, just to make you feel bad, I was an extra in it once. I was 16 and went to Emmerdale Farm, and my shoulder is in Emmerdale Farm. Back then, oh, no. it meant a lot. People were like, oh, I recognize your shirt. Do you know what I mean? That's how ridiculous it was back then now. That's hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah. Is that your claim to fame, Giles? Yeah? It is my claim to fame. It's yeah. good. I'll take it. <laughs> so Sorry, Tony. Back to you. I, I, that's all good. I didn't get the Emmerdale Farm audition, which I think romantically I thought, well, I'll go for my first audition. I'll get my first audition, and that will be kind of part of yeah. the story. Didn't get that. Second audition was for this regional BBC detective drama called Hetty Wainthrop Investigates, which is the first job that I ever did. And I ended up getting that job. And it, I just, I've just been working ever since, really. I've just not stopped working, you know. So that's how it happened. That was amazing. What a cool story. And how great that Hetty Wainthrop was obviously well known at the time. It was mm. something that people did watch. So you became a bit of a a known person overnight certainly in your circles people must have been like oh you're on telly now did that change things for you in terms of how you had to be as a person and it, and obviously that's changed who you are now it's totally gone into who you are especially being in something so young i don't know if it changed who i was i was always i was always the smallest kid in my group but i always had the loudest mouth you could never shut me up you know like if there was if there was a, a different group of people in the pub that were kicking off with my mates. I was never the person swinging punches, but I was always the person just shutting them down. With All right, good, good. Like reaching, reaching over through the tough guys to try and hit me, and I'd be at the back going, what, I didn't say that. Is it me? <laughs> I, was always that, I was always that guy, you know? So, yeah. I don't, so you're I don't the one starting the fights. Yeah, starting yeah, them yeah. running away. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Pushing your mates I, forward. I don't, think, I don't think that changed that much. It was a okay. weird... It was an interesting time for me because... First time I ever really had a job. First time getting paid. You're on the BBC. Mm. You're second lead in a show. It's mm. kind of a family show. It's a show for like, you know, young families and kids. It's very pedestrian. At a time where Manchester was absolutely exploding with Oasis and the Britpop scene and, you know, the, night, the nightclub scene in Manchester, the bar scene in Manchester was huge. It was one of the coolest places in Europe to be hanging out. It was, yeah. It, um, totally and I'm in this, the club and all that. I'm yeah. this kind of, kind of all right regional detective show where I'm not playing the cool guy. I'm playing like the greasy faced, spotty faced, bad haircut kind of guy. So it was a, it was a little bit of a juxtaposition with where I thought I was at because I was like, oh yeah, I'm one of those. You know, I'm one of those guys that's going to be on TFI Friday. I can be on the Big Breakfast with Chris Evans. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of one of the cool kids. But really, when you look back at it, you're like, nah, you're in kind of a, a crappy TV show. But um, <laughs> that's amazing to hear that, from that but, you know, Yeah, but that led to... Because you were successful. And yeah, then... you were successful. You were successful, but yeah, it's a weird time. But that during that time, you must have been auditioning for lots of stuff because it wasn't long after that you got Lord of the Rings. And obviously to move is on into sort of your bigger work, because obviously we want to talk about that as well. Um and how, do, you, do you remember, because there was loads of people auditioning for Lord of the Rings, it was something that at that time it, quite a lot of people were going for and it was it must have been a really wonderful time to sort of get that role. Can you remember the audition? Can you remember a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. I was going backwards and forwards to London quite a bit by that point because by the time I got Lord of the Rings, I was 22, so I'd been working since I was 18. Mm. Started to spend more time in London, did a play in London, was starting to do TV shows out of London, did a film in Berlin that was that was cut in London. So I spent a little bit more time in London and started to love London, love the tube uh, map, love the whole riding on the tube. <laughs> Love Covent Garden. Love the tube love, map. Love the tube map. Love mate. the tube map. I, I like the. I like. I the do. I, I, you can know all the places and the colours. Yeah. Monopoly map because, and all that. Yeah. Well, in New York, I don't know how much time you, get, you guys have spent in New York, but in New York, it's like it makes no sense. It's like take the A train, take the take the blue A train this way, or take the take yeah. the sixteen. It's red confusing. Train. Whereas. What I loved about London was the central line runs central. The northern line goes runs north. north and south. Yeah, a circle makes line. Sense. Pretty right. much a circle, yeah. The district line. Do you know what I mean? It all made sense to me. So I would study that map and absolutely love it. I loved getting lost in London. I loved finding new places. Um, so but I was, anyway. I was going, yeah, so I was going for auditions a lot and, you know, hadn't, hadn't nabbed anything too big. But then... My agent called me and said, he said, basically, look, there's like an open casting call for Lord of the Rings. He said, obviously, 
because he's a he was a renowned agent in London, he said, normally we put you in a place where you're a little bit more protected. You're coming in under the guise of this is someone who we really rate. But he said, unfortunately, the Hubbards, who are one of the biggest casting directors ever, we know them, yeah. are just basically saying anyone between the age of 16 and 27 mm-hmm. come in read some scenes and we'll see if you know we'll throw mud at the wall and see what sticks type thing so i i had done this play in london that the hubbards had been to see and i'd met them in the bar afterwards and they had said to me we really like the play we really want you to come in for lord of the rings it's going to happen in the next six eight weeks or so you know be on the lookout i was like okay great my dad's favorite book is Lord of the Rings. He, you know, we had, I'd read Lord of the Rings when I was 14. We had all the BBC Ian Holm recordings mm. of, of Lord of the Rings where he played Frodo. And obviously in the films, he plays Bilbo. So amazing. So I went in, saw the Hubbards. It was a generic read, which happens a lot in auditions nowadays, or, or, or maybe all the time. It's a generic read for a Hobbit. So they're not going to have a specific merry scene or a specific pipping scene what they're going to do is they're going to have ask everyone to read for frodo just to see if you have a kind of hobbity vibe you know <laughs> it's true yeah so i had i had a skinhead at the time because i was playing a skinhead in this play and i'd been punched on the tube so i had like a kind of yellowy not quite is, is it because you were giving it all that on no, the tube as well, going. The yellow line is the best one because it's circular, and then someone came on and went, "Have that." I was I was sat right next to the the door that opens and closes on the tube, mm-hmm. and I think someone just thought that I was a genuine skinhead because I had no hair. I kind of looked like a skinhead, and as the door opened for the guy to leave, he just smacked me in the face, and I was like, "What? What just happened?" And then he was gone. So, and thus ended your love affair with the tube. That's yeah. Terrible. It was, yeah. So, so I did not look very, very hobbity. No. You know? I went in and read for this scene. It's the scene where Gandalf knocks on Frodo's door and, and he welcomes him in and says, oh, where have you been? And they have a little catch-up type thing. Once that was done, John Hubbard, the guy who kind of was calling the shots, said, oh, you know, that was really great. That was really great. He said, can you stick around for the next 10 or 15 minutes? Because we just we want to ask you a couple of questions about availability and stuff. And I said, yeah, okay. And then he said to me, which was amazing, he said, if you wait in the reception area, he said, we're expecting David Bowie at any point. And I was like, what? What? And he went, yeah, don't, don't, don't be weird. Don't say anything. Just, you know, but he's going to come in. So I'm, I'm sat there, you know, just like reading, reading the magazine. Yeah. And in walks in the thin white Jew in a, in a suit. Wow. Looking impeccable. And I'd met him years after, and he's such a handsome such a handsome, charismatic man. Mm. But he, you know, obviously didn't know who I was from Adam. Just kind of breezed in like he was floating on air. Yeah. And then he came out and he did his audition. And, and John Hubbard was just basically saying to me, because I was going to France to make a TV show. He said, look, we know you're going to France. We know you're going to be away for two months. If, you, if we need you to come back to London, can you come back to London? And I was like, look, I'll come at the weekend. I'll fly on a Friday night sure. and I'll leave on a Sunday night type thing. He said, okay, great. I was in France coming towards the end of this film, got a phone call from my agent saying, well, you, you might need to fly to either LA or New Zealand potentially to chat with Peter Jackson because he wants to talk to you and he doesn't want to do it in a, in a situation like this, like mm. an online video chat. So he said, just watch this space. And I said, okay, cool. And then like, I think two days later, he called me back and said, you don't need to fly anywhere. They just offered you the part. And I was like, oh, great. Let's do it. That was it. Let's wow. go. And that just, and it changed your life in so many ways. The fact that, you know, it's three years over there, right? In terms of in New Zealand just, shooting. Ju- just under two years. Just under two. Um, okay. But then, but then what people don't tend to know. So, so we're there for just under two years. We leave. We have a big rap party. Everyone's crying, hugging Pete. Oh God, I'll never see you again. And Pete was like, no, no, you're going to be back here for like two months in the summer mm-hmm. and then you're going to be back to do reshoots for the two towers the year after that and then you're going to be back for two months to do reshoots for return of the king after that so two years principal photography and then three years running we went back for two months and as you guys know you can shoot a whole movie in two months amazing amazing what do you what's your lasting memories obviously we want to get to a couple of other things as well a couple of lasting memories and obviously working with peter jackson as well and over three films how did that develop and you as an actor develop during that time you know, Pete's about as close to 
a genius that I've met, certainly in his field, there's nothing that he doesn't know about uh, making a film. And he can, he can, if there's a problem on set, something technical, he can work out what that is faster than anyone else. He can put a camera on his shoulder. He can operate sound. He can solve any problems. He's extremely smart. There was a scene that we were doing. Um, where were we? Oh, we were, we were doing the, the kind of, the, the whole fellowship, as it were, running to have the final battle where Aragorn says, you know, for Frodo, we all run in there. So we were, we were on set and Pete had, it was either four or possibly five little tiny screens, little monitors about this big. Wow. On, on set yeah. that were units in different parts of New Zealand. Wow. So there'd be, a, there'd be a couple of units back in Wellington on, on his um, film studio. Right. So they'd be filming a, a little scene with Orlando or a scene with uh, Daisy Wenham or a scene with Miranda Otto. So he'd be talking to us. Okay, guys, great. Reset the horses. Let's make sure that uh, the, the fires are blazing over there. Give me two minutes. Everyone get ready. High energy. Okay, hold that. And then he'd go to this monitor and he'd be like, okay, guys, so move the camera to the left a little bit. <laughs> And that's amazing let's just bump up the line then he'd go to this monitor he'd be like okay Orlando that was great let's do 25% more energy and he'd get everyone ready and he'd be like okay hold you guys hold unit 7 hold unit 4 hold unit 5 hold and then he'd go okay action and he'd watch us do that and we'd do it and then he'd be like okay hold guys and he'd go okay unit 4 action and, then he'd watch and we'd be like you're like playing chess with 5 different people at the same time it was it was crazy to watch someone work at that level and That's hugely incredible. But in terms Giles, of Giles, I think you should try that. I should try that. I should try. <laughs> yeah. that. We'll do it on our next film. Like the lasting memory is all about the people, right? That 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 might be the case for all of us in our life. When you've gone through an experience, the things that stick with you are the people. So the lasting memory outside of the 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 less important things like New Zealand, like the location, like the the girlfriends that might have uh, come and gone, like the mm -hmm. like they're flying in helicopters or the surfing or the stunts, the real things that stick are your relationships. It's my relationship with Vigo. It's my relationship with Billy and Orlando and Sean and and Elijah and Pete. Those are the things that ultimately hang around and and tell the story of what you've been through. It was because you did it together and you did the whole journey together and mm. nobody can take that away from you, whether they liked the movie or they didn't. It's, it's something that you created together. Yeah, and, and made something yeah. so spectacular that the world knows forever it's there and you were involved in that and you can't take care of those relationships ever. It's, it's incredible, um, yeah. really incredible. And I suppose, yeah, just touching on Lost a little bit because Lucinda wanted to... Um, <gasps> can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were puking your um, previous characters, mm. yeah. you didn't puke Charlie, did you? I don't think I did. I don't think I did puke Charlie because Charlie's one of the characters that I've ha hung on to the most and, and spent the most amount of time with. I was not aware of, of puking up any Charlie stuff. And Charlie's your character from Lost. Most of Charlie's personality is adorable. Most of it, not all of it, you know. So I don't think I needed to get rid of Charlie too much. So <laughs> I'm a massive Lost fan. Right. And I found with Lost, I don't know if you saw it or not, Giles, but every episode you fell in love with a different character and it changed throughout the whole season. There was not one that kind of you, you kept with because they kept changing. But I really wanted to sing for you. We are everybody. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was you know, a I was massive at, drive shaft fan. At like the height of Lost's notoriety, I was asked <laughs> by a couple of high profile, high profile bands to come and sing you all everybody before they came on stage wow. that's, a I, that's amazing i was like look that's that's fantastic what a great opportunity but i said it's not a song it's just a verse and a <laughs> chorus there's no second verse there's nothing to it so i said i'd come on for like 20 seconds and they were like yeah come on for 20 seconds i was like no i can't i can't do that like, but high profile bands you know? yeah that's so cool. And again, talk so about. So thank you for letting me do that. Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> we're, we're all over the moon. Um, you know, but I, it's really interesting the high profile jobs you've done, and you know, Star Wars is in there. You've lost Lord of the Rings. It, it's incredible your list. Yeah, a bit of X Men in there as well. You know, it's like 
wow do you sometimes look back and go oh my gosh this is incredible do you, do you sometimes sit and go i i've look look what i've achieved it's it's amazing mm, I, I i don't think i do as much about what i've achieved i do i do stick to the wow factor to the to the wonder of it all but not necessarily as much the patting of my back in terms of what i've achieved i a lot of this is manifestation and i wasn't really fully aware of of manifestation until it started to come into my life in a really significant way. I mean, I wanted to be in Star Wars since I was like eight or nine. Well, that's what I, I mean. You said it was your favourite movie as a kid. It's the yeah, cinematic a love. That is a quote from Yoda. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. It's a quote from Yoda. Amazing. Wow. Then, and then Yoda. there you are on the set of Star Wars. Yeah. You know, it, wow. And I, I, had, I had a Lord of the Rings poster in my bedroom when I was 15 or 16. And I remember thinking, because I knew I wanted to be an actor at that point, I remember thinking, that would be the greatest film project to ever be involved in. Boom, then you do it. I learned to surf in New Zealand. I wanted to continue surfing. I knew that Hawaii was a hotspot for that. I find myself in Hawaii. It's just, you guys know, it's where you put your intention. And my intention was into these places. So... Um, I do sit there and, and count my blessings very often in terms of what I've been able to do. But, you know, most, most people in this business give up. I say that to people all the time when they want to be an actor, what's, what's the secret? I just say most people give up. Most people try it for 18 months, two years, three years, and they just go, it's hard. And it is genuinely hard. But if you want to do it with all of your being and you're – you, you are not willing to give up. You will get there. It will happen. It's inevitable. You just have but They to put a time frame on it as well, people, don't they? I hear a lot oh. of actors yes. um, that go, yeah, if I haven't made it in five years or by the time I'm 35, then I'm giving up. So it doesn't work like that. No. And then well, what about then some advice for actors then in that case for working with directors and things you've learned from certain directors over the time? You know, what do's and don'ts, if there's any you can give us. I mean, it's not that easy, I know, but it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on, on working with directors and producers and on a film set. Acting is listening, right? Stanislavski, one of the more famous quotes by Stanislavski is that acting is listening. And I, I do subscribe to that. You have to you have to be a consummate listener and that begins with the director whatever they want to get across to you whatever they want to try and appeal to you in a scene you have to listen to them now that's not to say that you might have a differing point of view i've i've you know been approached by directors that have said you know, whatever, I'd like you to be a little bit more angry or I'd like you to be a little bit more sad. And in my head, I think, I don't necessarily know if I want to play that, but I'll give you that option because it's not up to me to decide what you're going to choose. That's up to you and your editor. So if you want me to be more angry, here's an angrier version, but I subscribe to the less angry version. So listening is, is key. Um, I wouldn't be too overly concerned with, being nervous on set and, and being anxious on set, certainly in the kind of early part of your career, because everyone gets nerves. Everyone's, everyone's a little um, unsure about what they should or shouldn't be doing on set in a, in a, in a working set that is there to work at its highest potential. Every single person is there attempting to put the actor in their most perfect place so that they can do their job. No one is trying to trip you up. Everyone's trying to make you be in your element. So you should gain a certain amount of confidence with that. And then the other thing is like, if you mess up in a scene, you know, they just, if it's terrible, the director will say, okay, let's, you know, let's reset. Let's go again. You've lost 35, 40 seconds of your life. It might feel huge to you, oh, I said that line perfect, and then I said that line perfect, and then I did that thing perfect, and then, oh, I messed it up at the end. It's, uh, it's 30 seconds of your life. Go back, wipe the slate clean, start again. You know, you always get a chance to start again. So it feels intimidating at first, as is the case with most things. The more you become familiar with it, the easier it becomes. 
Great answer. You've exec produced a couple of things as well, which is really interesting. What's the difference then for you coming on as an exec producer or producer on projects when you're acting in them as well? And you've pretty much acted in everything you've been involved in the producing side. The difference there is because you're probably representing the actor's narrative as the producer, the other producers in the situation will come to you for questions that they might ask someone representing the actors, you know? So they might say, look, this week we're going to be completely crammed for time. Are you guys willing to work through your lunchtime so that we can wrap an hour earlier at night? Can you go speak to the actors and see how they feel about that? Or, you know, on a Wednesday, we're going to be up the side of a mountain and we can't bring everyone's trailers. Can you ask the actors, can they all sit in one trailer just for one afternoon so that it's not an issue? So some minor kind of union type questions might come towards me. In the early part of pre-production, a lot of that will be, look, we've, we've cast you, we've cast uh, your mother, we've cast your father. We're looking for someone to play your daughter. Do you know anyone? Do you know someone that might know somebody? Things like that. And then you just end up kind of representing the actors in a sense. So if, if, I'm, if I'm in a scene with 10 actors and we've done an hour and a half of overtime and they're asking for an extra half hour because I'm an EP, I'm expected quite rightly to go over to those actors and say, look, it's going to be one of those nights where we are going to push it an extra half hour, but it's only going to be tonight. Otherwise we're going to have to wrap early and then it's going to be an extra hour tomorrow. So, you know, are we going to be okay? Little things like that. It's, it's problem solving in real time, which I enjoy doing. That was great because obviously uh, Giles and I are both producers as well. And it's interesting to hear from, um, you know, your level and our level that you can still have those conversations with actors because it's difficult to speak to actors about can you go through lunch because obviously there are unions in place. Um, and I suppose when you get into that situation, when you are a family and you're creating something together, you can have those frank conversations when the agents or the lawyers and the managers aren't around because yeah. you have to do all that stuff leading up to the shoot. And then when you get on there, it's kind of like everyone's in it for each other. Yeah. And, you're and the glue. You, know, you, you guys know in a working environment, if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you are able to make a decision for the, for the individuals in the group, there has been times as a producer where I've said to, I've said to uh, one of my producing partners, I've said, look, this actress has been in the last scene for the last five days running mm -hmm. and the last two nights she was soaking wet under nighttime rain and she's exhausted. Why don't you switch her first scene tomorrow for me yeah. so that she can have an extra hour sleeping in the morning? Just little things like that where you just kind of, you're just papering over the cracks. Yeah. You know? Do you think it's made you uh, understand the filmmaking side of it a lot more by jumping on the exec producer side of it and going, ah, I understand now why films don't always happen straight away or understand why there might be issues on set. Has that really opened your mind to that once you started producing? Yeah, it definitely has. Just catching lightning in a bottle is what they call filmmaking, as you guys know. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it, it is kind of crazy. Every time you're on set, you just think, wow, we all got here. You know, there's 130 people all here all pushing to make this thing happen on this day. And it's impressive to see. It also has made me empathize much more with some of the trials and tribulations that producers might get in where they're, they're having absolute scheduling issues. Meanwhile, you've got a, a bunch of actors that say, no, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be at work until 8.15. I'm not going to get there at seven. It's just not going to happen. And you're able to say, look, if you get here at seven, Instead of wrapping at six, we'll wrap you at 4.30. It's, it's understanding that a little bit of give and take is needed in these situations. You know? Amazing. Thank you, Dom. Uh, we got to let you go, but honestly, this has been amazing. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for chatting with you guys too. Thanks, Dom. Pet is available now. Go see it. Uh, honestly, Dom is amazing in it, and it's a brilliant, brilliant psychological thriller horror movie. Really good. Well done, buddy. Thank you again for your time. Thanks, guys. Stay safe and well in these crazy, topsy-turvy times. Will do. And Cheers, you. Dom. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye.
So look, that was Dominic Monaghan. What a brilliant guy. He gave so much information about being an actor and the, the run up to what you do on set. Really, really cool. I imagine you can find him on the socials and the Twitter, but you can find me at Giles Alderson or the Filmmakers Pod at Filmmakers Pod. Lucinda, where can people follow you? You can find me at Lucinda R. Thakra and also my production company, Picture Perfect at PicPerf Limited. Woohoo! Come and say hi. We're going to have to get Dominic in one of our films. He's really cool, isn't he? Well, we've got some going on, so we should yeah start putting the cast list together and get him on board. Should do. Yeah, I like that he can go talk to the actors for us. He can go over and that's go, hey, brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. Really, well, that's normally Dom. my job. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great, Dom? Will you just go have a word? Go have a word. I love that. What a guy. Absolutely I love that. Legend. Let's go and speak to actors about working through lunch. It's like, yeah. okay. Okay, I'm good luck. Take, yeah. <laughs> good luck, Stephen Burke. Lightning in a bottle. <laughs> Lightning in a bottle. I love it. Uh, amazing. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next Tuesday for another enthralling episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you for listening. Go out there and make your film. Make it happen. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. See ya next Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.